If you will, take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We'll read the whole chapter here in just a moment. If you'll recall from last week, we have shifted in the book of Daniel from the narratives, the stories of the first six chapters, to what is called apocalyptic literature in the last half. Apocalyptic literature uses image, image, often disturbing images, to communicate a message about the unfolding events of future uh, world history. And so, as we read this, if you haven't read it before today, uh, that's what we're going to be reading. And so, let's do that. Let's read the whole of the chapter. If you'll follow along. If you're using a Bible uh, in one of the pews and you're not familiar with how to get to the book of Daniel, it's, uh, Daniel 8 is on page 745 of that Bible. This is what the Spirit says. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as the, great of the, as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and, and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision." So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter time of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, 
but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, even as Daniel sought to understand the vision, so we do now. And even as Daniel needed your help to understand, so we do now. And so we ask you, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will help us to understand what you have said in your word. Help us to hear it. Help us to hear it with open minds and open ears and a will ready to obey you. We pray that you will give us hope and strength and help through this text. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. After World War II in 1946, the Nuremberg trials were held to bring Nazi war criminals to justice. And as a result of the first round of those trials, 11 men were sentenced to execution. One committed suicide before the execution could take place, but the other 10 were hanged. All were prominent members of the Nazi party, some in Hitler's inner circle. After the execution, their bodies were taken to be cremated, and the ashes were collected all in one container, and those ashes were put into a vehicle and driven out to the countryside in the rain. And after about an hour of driving, the vehicle stopped, and they poured out the ashes in a ditch by the side of the road. And the account I read of this says this, five or six years before, these men could dominate and intimidate. That night, a drizzle washed them away. And that's the kind of thing that we see here in Daniel chapter 8, these rise of powerful men who are finally reduced to nothing. Now, as we go, we're going to bump into some of the same kingdoms that we saw in last week's vision in chapter 7, but this is not a repeat of what we saw last week. That was a vision about the end of history. This is a vision about a particular point in the future in history, but not in Daniel's day. You notice in verse 26, Daniel's told to seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And what we'll see in this chapter is that though evil thrives and seems unstoppable, God is in control. Though evil thrives and seems unstoppable, doesn't it sometimes seem unstoppable? Doesn't it seem like a snowball growing larger and larger, rolling down a hill, ready to run over us? And yet, while it seems that way, God is in control. So let's look at it first by looking at these unstoppable kings. It's been two years since Daniel's last vision. The last one he was beside a raging sea. This time he is in Susa. Now Daniel's not actually in Susa. In his vision 
he's in Susa. He sees himself there near the Ulai Canal, which is either a man-made irrigation system or a stream outside the city. Susa's outside the Babylonian Empire, it's, uh, but it will later become the center of power, all right, in the world. But the first thing Daniel sees is a ram, a ram with two horns, one larger than the other. And according to verse 20, these horns represent the kings of Media and Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. And they're one's greater than the other because there's a power imbalance in that empire, the, the Persians being dominant. And look at verse 4 at what this ram does. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. No one can withstand the ram's will. If you are trapped by this ram, nobody can rescue you from his power. Whatever he wants to do, he does. Whatever, wherever he wants to go, he goes. What, what, whomever he wants to conquer, he conquers. And yet, verse 5 happens. There's a new sheriff in town, a goat. And I was considering, as I was considering, behold, this is verse 5, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. It kind of reminds you of those cartoons where characters are moving so quickly, right? They're not even touching the ground. Uh, it's that, that speed is what's being pictured here. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now this goat, according to verse 21, is the king of Greece. And this, the great conspicuous horn that Daniel sees at first, verse 21 says, is the first king. It is who we know as Alexander the Great. Now we have fast forwarded 200 years. That ram in verse 4 going around and doing all it wants to do, that's 200 years. And then the goat shows up. First, at the battle of the Granicus River in 334 B.C., and Alexander shows up with like 35,000 guys to battle against the Persians who number over 100,000 men, and Alexander wins that battle only losing 100 guys. And after a couple more battles, he secures his dominance. Greece is a superpower. The Persian Empire is through, and what Daniel has, what is predicted here to Daniel comes to be the case. The ram cast him down, the goat cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. But even as it grew great, the very next verse tells us that when it grows great, it was broken. Its greatness didn't last. And four horns come up in its place, Greece's kingdom is divided between basically four generals, and they rule different parts of the empire. Now, if you notice, look in, look in verse 4, and then look in verse 7. You'll see similar language. When the ram was dominant, what did it say? It said, no one can withstand his power, and no one can rescue from him. When the goat is in power, what does it say? Not even the ram can withstand his power, and no one can rescue from him. Both of these kings seem unstoppable. And yet, while they seem unstoppable, they're not invincible. One of the commentators I read this week said, superpowers are not safe places. Just because you're a superpower doesn't mean you're safe. The ram gets trampled. The great horn gets broken. In the end, there is no unstoppable kingdom. 
There is no kingdom or empire or democratic republic that is invincible. So we ought not to place our hope in the best of them, and we ought not to be crippled by fear because of the worst of them. Because all of them come to an end. But going on, things in Daniel's vision get more concerning, more threatening, more ominous when we bump up against, secondly, an unthinkable evil. Unstoppable kings and then an unthinkable evil. So Alexander the Great dies. These four generals take over. And out of one of them, uh, one of them is the beginning of what we know as the Seleucid dynasty. And uh, this, horn, this is the little horn that's referenced in uh, this one that arises out of that dynasty is the little horn of verse 9. Let's just read it and remind ourselves of what happens with this little horn. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it, the little horn, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Now something is different here. This isn't just a bad guy on the stage of world history. He's not just going to be dominant just anywhere. Did you notice at the ver- end of verse 9, look where he goes. He goes to the south, he goes to the east, and where else? Just say it out loud. The glorious land. He's not just going to be an evil guy somewhere in the world. He's going to be one who brings evil into Israel, who exerts his evil deeds in Israel. I actually think, and this is just conjecture on my part, but I actually think this is part of what makes Daniel sick at the end of his vision. He's laying sick in his bed because... I mean, after all that Jerusalem has already been through, more is going to happen. You see, the people are going to be back in the land at some point, and you can imagine as they're traipsing back into the land, right? They think we're going to cross the border. We're basically going to let out a sigh of relief, and then the words will come up on the screen, and they all lived happily ever after. But that's not what's going to happen. Because evil will still thrive. Evil will break through the border again. And Daniel's sick because of it. But notice this little man isn't this little horn isn't just fighting against men, he's fighting against God. This is a cosmic battle. Did you see there were stars and the host of heaven and things being thrown to the ground from the sky and and all of this? This is not just about two armies being at war. This is about opposition and an affront to God Himself. And let, let me just summarize all that He does. First, He opposes God Himself in verse 11. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And then again in verse uh, 24 or 5, 25. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He opposes God himself. He also takes away the worship of God. Verse 11, the regular burnt offering was taken away. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. He oppresses the people of God. Verse 12, a host will be given over to it. And verse 24, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. He suppresses the truth of God. Verse 12, it will throw truth to the ground. And then we see he's fierce 
and skilled in intrigue. Look at verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. This king of bold face doesn't mean that he's courageous. It means his face is hardened. It means his face is snarling. It means you don't want to meet him in a dark alley. You don't want to be on his bad side. He is a fierce character. And he understands riddles doesn't mean that, you know, he just, you can ask him a riddle and he can just answer anything. I think the NAS is better here when it talks about him being skilled in intrigue. He's a clever guy, he's cunning, he's a schemer. And if you notice, verse 24, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. I mean, deception is a way of life for this character. He strikes terror into the heart of all he encounters and he leaves a pile of dead bodies in his wake. This is unthinkable evil. But who is this king? Well, first, we ought to note that this is the second time we've been told about a little horn. There was one in chapter 7, but this little horn is not that little horn. That little horn arises at the end of history. This one arises out of this whole Roman expansion of Rome becoming a picture of the, 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 the kingdoms of the world, if you will, this one arises out of Greece. But even though it's not the same horn, he is a lot like this, that little horn, isn't he? Do you remember last week? He blasphemes against God. He tramples God's people, makes himself out to be God. That's exactly what this fellow's doing. He's got the same stench as the other little horn. He's like a predecessor of the little horn, capital L, capital H. He's like an antichrist before Christ is ever born. He's in that same line. But who is it? Well, when you look back at history and see how it unfolds, you learn that this evil is perpetrated. This man, this little horn, this one who rises up, is Antiochus IV. Or as he liked to be called, Antiochus Epiphanes. Which means, Epiphanes means, God made manifest. Or God revealed. He gave himself a little nickname. Even though others would call him um, uh, Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. But this is who it is. You may not know that name. But go ask your Jewish friends. I guarantee you they probably know his name. Because the events that are recorded here in Daniel 8 are connected to what uh, our friends, the Jews, call, uh, uh, celebrate as Hanukkah. Now, Antiochus comes to power in, a, in like 175 B.C., but not because he's the next in line. You see, his nephew actually should have been on the throne, but Antiochus is a cunning fella, and he weasels his way into power. And here's his military strategy when it comes to the Jews. You know what he did a lot? Attack on the Sabbath. You know why? Because the Jews won't fight back on the Sabbath. And so he attacks himself, and he sends his cronies to attack. And over the course of time, tens of thousands of Jews are slaughtered at his hand. Tens of thousands more are sold into slavery. He has the, high, the legitimate high priest murdered and replaces him with his puppet so that he can dip into the temple treasury anytime he wants. And then he starts a program. He's got a great domestic program. He wants to reshape the Israelite life. He wants to make them more Greek. He, he operates basically a forced Hellenization program, which means he wants to make them Greek. So what he does, 
is he prohibits the observation of Jewish festivals, including the Sabbath. He prohibits circumcision. It becomes mandatory to eat unclean meat. In fact, there's, a, there's, a, 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 there's a, a, an account of an older man named Eliezer who refuses to eat the pig's meat, and he is beaten to death for it. In the book of 1 Maccabees, which is not part of the Bible, but it's a historical record of the time, we read this about that time. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. And then Antiochus crosses the line of all lines. He goes into the Holy of Holies and he sacrifices unclean animals on that altar and he sets up a a statue of Zeus to be worshipped and he institutes human sacrifices to be made. It is unthinkable evil. He is like an antichrist before Christ is ever born. And even still, can I just tell you that as I thought about this and as I read these things and prepared, can I just tell you that I was encouraged by something? Can I encourage you with it? Think about the precision of the prophecy and its fulfillment. Just think about that. Daniel is living uh, in a, in, you know, this is happening, this, this uh, dream with Belshazzar is around 550 B.C. And it is almost 400 years later before Antiochus rises to power. So th- just think about it. Put, go to the next slide. Th- so Daniel chapter 8 tells us a fierce king who is skilled in intrigue will arise. Almost 400 years later, Antiochus weasels his way to the throne. Daniel chapter 8 tells us that this king will oppose God himself. Antiochus has coins printed that say Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifested, raising himself up against God. Daniel chapter 8 says he will oppress the people of God. Almost 400 years later, tens of thousands are slaughtered and tens of thousands more are sold into slavery. Daniel chapter 8 tells us he will suppress, he will throw truth to the ground. And almost 400 years later, they are ripping the Scripture to shreds and burning it and killing you if you have a copy in your house. Now, the precision of that prophecy makes some people think, oh, well, Daniel couldn't have been written way back then. It had to have been written after this whole Antiochus thing took place. Well, the problem is, is that historically, the way the book of Daniel was copied and distributed and how far it had spread and how widespread it was only decades after this makes it historically impossible that it was written after this happened. Now, I encourage you, do your own study. If you want to read a a more concise uh, summary. Look at Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on this. It's a wonderful commentary. But honestly, it's not historical evidence that make people say, oh, it must have been written afterwards. You know what it is? It's the presupposition that God can't actually do this. God doesn't do this. It's, it, it's, the, it's the desire to do away with the supernatural that leads you to deny this kind of thing. But friends, we shouldn't doubt God's Word because of its precision. 
We should treasure God's Word because of its precision. We worship a God who doesn't just work in history. He has written all of history, and He rules over history so that He can accurately tell us what will happen three minutes from now, three hours from now, three days from now, three weeks from now, three months from now, three years from now, three decades from now, three centuries from now, three millennia from now. He can do all of that. The precision of this prophecy should strengthen our confidence in the Word of God, in its authority, in its infallibility, in its truthfulness. So take that as an encouragement. In the midst of all of that horrible evil that I just described, the thing we can take away and cling to God with is that God says it's going to happen. And God gives us incredible detail. Not every moment, you understand. Not exhaustive detail, but you know what He gives us? Sufficient detail. The Bible is sufficient for all of life and all of godliness. Unstoppable kings. Then comes unthinkable evil. But we dare not forget undeniable sovereignty. In these power struggles, in the evil, God is not absent. He's there. We just have to look. In the beginning of the little horn's reign, it says His power will be great, but not by His own power. Certainly, it is the power of the evil one, but who is it? Remember the beginning of Job? Who is it that is sovereign even over the evil one? Who is it that the evil one must ask permission of before he does anything? It is God. And then when you get to the end of the little horn's reign, in verse 25 you see that he is broken but by no human hand. You see, the rise and fall of the ram, the rise and fall of the goat, and the rise and fall of the little horn all fall within the sovereign work of God. And you don't even have to go outside the book of Daniel to confirm it. Because in Daniel chapter 2, it says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. I don't have this in my notes, but in, in, in Isaiah 40, we read of God that He is the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem or their horn taken root in the earth. When He blows on them and they wither, when they are the pile of ashes in a ditch being washed away by the drizzle of His sovereign power. Yes, Antiochus weasels his way into power, but not apart from God's sovereign will and work. And Antiochus' death isn't caused by human beings. He, he goes mad and he contracts some kind of disease and he dies. He is broken, but by no human hand. And Antiochus' reign, well, even that is set and limited by God. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Now there is some discussion about this twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings. Does it mean twenty-three hundred days? Well, that would mark the time from the time that Antiochus has the high priest murdered 
to the time that things are restored to order in 164 B.C. We'll talk a bit about that in just a second. Or does it, is it referring to 2300 morning and evenings as in evening sacrifice, morning sacrifice, and there was evening and there was morning kind of thing? If so, that knocks that number in half to 1150, which is the time from the time that Antiochus set up the statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the temple to the time the temple was restored. Now, it could be either, and I will let you settle that over lunch. That would be fine. Eat your sandwich and discuss which one it is. The point is that just as the exile in Babylon is limited by God, Jeremiah says it will be 70 years, just as God limits the exile, He is going to limit the evil outpouring in Israel. And it is kindness and mercy that God limits the suffering of His people. Boyfriend, it is helpful to remember that. Whether the suffering is coming on us from outside of us, or whether the suffering is just maybe inside us because it's something that is happening in our bodies, for the Christian, it is limited. Even if our suffering ends in death, it is limited. Dear friend, the sufferings of this world cannot reach beyond the grave. It can't do it. It will not touch you when you enter into the presence of God. It cannot be there. And when I breathe my final breath, I'll have no need to fear that rest. This hope, This hope I have. Be still. We just learned this song. Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Because the sufferings of, not only do the sufferings of life not compare to the glory that is to be revealed, the sufferings of this life can't cross over. The only suffering that is beyond the grave is the suffering that will take place for those who cling to their sin and reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And that suffering will last forever. But the sufferings of persecution, the suffering of pain in our bodies, the suffering of chronic illness, the suffering of deteriorating bodies, is mercifully limited by God. Sometimes we recover in this life. Sometimes we don't, but it's all limited. Isn't that good news? And this time that Daniel 8 speaks about will be limited too. Historically, it'll be cut off through a resistance, an uprising in the Jews uh, by the faithful Jews, that is, uh, called the, the Maccabees. They will lead a resistance The Jews will cleanse the temple and rededicate it in 164 B.C. And this, this this reclaiming of the temple is what is celebrated in Hanukkah. But there's still a nagging question. How can you read Daniel 8 and not ask this question, okay? God brings this little horn to the throne, right? God sets days that He is going to ravage people. God brings him to his end. But why did God do it in the first place? Isn't that a good question? Sometimes we don't have that answer. 
You may look at Daniel 8 and say, well, is there an answer here? Is there an answer to why God is doing this? I think so. Look at verse 12. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. Why? Because of transgression. Now look at verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, their meaning the four kings out of the one from Greece, out of the end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, then a king of bold face will arise. He doesn't arise to do the transgression, though what he's doing is transgression. This says that when the transgressors have reached their limit, when they have crossed the line, I think you could say when God's patience has run out, the king arises. And look at verse 19. It speaks of the latter end of the indignation. Indignation is an Old Testament word used 22 times, and 21 of those 22 times it refers to God's wrath against sin. And so while it is unthinkable evil on the human level, much like the Babylonians coming into Jerusalem, wasn't it? Much like Nebuchadnezzar burning the walls and tearing down the temple and robbing the treasury and killing people. Unthinkable evil. And yet, it is also indignation. It is also God. God's indignation. In other words, this evil is coming on the Jews because of the sins of the Jews. Again, Referring to this historical book, First uh, Maccabees, just listen to what's recorded as to what's going on, what the situation is. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. So they removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant. They sold themselves to do evil. Now, not all of the Jews compromise, but many do. They join hands with unbelievers for the sake of getting along, because they think things will go better in our life, things will go better in our society if we just link arms with these unbelievers, if we will just compromise. If we just won't be such sticklers for holiness and for truth and for the worship of God, if we would just not be such sticklers, everything would go better for us. But friends, by definition, compromise means you surrender something. And while we as unbelievers had to surrender everything to come to Jesus, when believers go to compromise with the world... Believe you me, the world is not compromising anything so great as what the Christian is compromising. The church has to bend toward the world to compromise. And the Jews in that day bent themselves into evil. I mean, just think about this. Think about, think about these people who grew up going to history class, right? And they learn the history of their people. And instead of, as a junior in high school here, you have to take U.S., you know, U.S. history. There, as a junior in high school, you have to take Israeli history, all right? And they're going to go through the history of Israel. And they go through it all the time at church, but now we got to do it for school. Why do we have to do it at school? We do it at church. I mean, come on. Anyway, so these juniors are sitting there, and they're hearing about the sin in the Jews and the fact that God sent prophets over and over and over again to warn them, to call them back, and they wouldn't listen so God sent the Babylon God first sends the Assyrians against the northern kingdom in 722 and then God sends the Babylonians against Judah in 587 
And you would think they would sit there in class and think, I am never doing that. And who knows, maybe some of them did. Maybe some of them got to the last night of the revival at synagogue and they said, oh, I'm never going back again. All to Yahweh I surrender. And yet the cycle of sin went on. They didn't learn from this history. They didn't learn. They didn't heed it. It's like when a man or a woman whose sin causes them leads to the losing of everything. They lose their family. They, they lose their friends. They lose their career. They lose their health. They, they, they lose their freedom. And yet still they want their sin. They ignore God's warnings in these kinds of temporal judgments and they press on because they want their sin more than they want God. You see, the vision of this little horn should be a warning against sinful compromise to keep the Jews from wandering. When this, when this text is pulled out and read, it should be a warning to them, but they are prone to wander just as we are. And for those who won't compromise, who won't sell themselves to do evil, this vision is a promise that the suffering won't last. The little horn will not have the last word. God will, so stay steady. And when we read this, we ought not to think compromise is inevitable. We ought to think when we see compromise, we need to stay steady. When celebrity pastors fall, stay steady. When entire denominations drift, stay steady. When Christians we've looked to for years are now compromising, stay steady. When those who have always been faithful in teaching begin to adopt and integrate the thoughts of the world into their teaching, stay steady. When evil thrives in culture and when it weasels its way through the cracks of the door under the church door, stay steady. Because don't think that God will just look aside and say, oh, that's no big deal. It is a huge deal. Peter says judgment begins with the house of God. And as the vision ends, there's Daniel laying in his bed, sick as a dog, confused. Not just because the evil is going to happen in Israel, but it's going to happen because of Israel. And there's nothing he can do about it. Verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. <laughs> How does he get out of bed? <laughs> How does he not get tied up into knots of fear and anxiety and worry and travel down a spiral into the darkness of depression? How does he do that? I mean, if God gave someone a vision of another 9-11 with thousands dead and there was nothing they could do about it, they might just curl themselves up in the fetal position and never get out of it. How does Daniel get out of it? How does he go back to work as if it's just another Monday? He does it because you cannot read Daniel 8 without first reading Daniel 7. Daniel doesn't even record his vision in Daniel 8 without referencing Daniel 7. Did you notice that in verse 1? A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Daniel can get out of bed because this vision of unthinkable evil comes after the vision of the end and the conquering Son of Man who will rule the kingdom of God forever. Daniel can't do anything about the evil that thrives in the world, but God will. Daniel can't do anything to stop the cycle of sin, 
but God will. Daniel can't save God's people from judgment, but God will. And God will ultimately do it through the Son of Man, through Jesus Christ. Through His death on the cross, the evil that thrives in us is punished in Him so it can be forgiven in us. Our sin desecrated the temple of Christ's body. It trampled Him. It overwhelmed Him. But He conquered it. He was raised from the dead, but by no human hand. God, who sets up kings, raised Him from the dead and has set Him as the king above every king, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is Lord. Not only only are we set free through the cross of Jesus, but that because of the victory of Jesus over sin, all evil is doomed. Colossians 2 tells us, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And the fullness of that victory, dear brothers, dear sisters, is still, it is guaranteed, and it's coming. So while evil thrives in the world and turns our stomach just like it turned Daniel's stomach, while we're appalled by evil just as Daniel was, while we don't always understand it just as Daniel didn't, still we can get up and go about our business and do our jobs and raise our families and serve our church and share the gospel and do good because though evil thrives and seems unstoppable, God is in control. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you thankful that you are sovereign over every molecule at every moment. Thankful that though evil thrives all around us, it is not out of your grip or your sovereign control. God, we see this vision in Daniel 8, and it turns our stomach, and it confuses us, and we don't get all of it, but God, help us to get that you are in control. God, when you bring temporal judgments, oh God, help us to learn from them. When we have to lose and suffer in our own lives because of our own sin, oh God, teach us so that we don't continue the cycle. Who can deliver us from this body of death, this body of sin? Thanks be to you, our God, through Jesus Christ, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Would you help us to live as people who know we are not condemned, And not live in ways that displease you, that drag your name through the mud. Help us to heed the warning of Daniel 8. Though this time in history has come and gone. Give us grace to not compromise, but to stay steady in the faith. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day, in the days to come, and forevermore. Amen.